This episode of the Model Railway Show is made possible with the support of the National Model Railroad Association. With almost 10,000 prototype photos and drawings online, we make it even more fun. Model Railway Show. I'm Trevor Marshall. And I'm Jim Martin. Welcome to the little podcast with big ideas and noteworthy guests. And we have two more guests of note this time around. We're going to have NMRA President Charlie Getz back on the show. He's going to talk about an exciting new museum being hatched out on the left coast. But first, it's time for Trevor to clear his throat, dust off his notes, and welcome Doug Gurren. Doug is a man you might say who has designs on the hobby. His motto is make only new mistakes. Some of the most famous model railway enthusiasts are the layout designers. Frank Ellison and John Armstrong are early examples. Alan McClelland and Tony Custer come to mind, as do Ian Rice, Byron Henderson, Lance Mindheim, and the late Carl Arndt. But unless you're a member of the Layout Design Special Interest Group, you'll be forgiven if you haven't heard of Doug Gurren. Well, we're here to correct that today. Doug is the person that layout designers go to when they need advice and inspiration. He was instrumental in founding the Layout Design Special Interest Group, and it's safe to say that, directly and indirectly, his thoughts on design have influenced the best layouts in North America. Doug lives in the Washington, D.C. area, where he continues to fine-tune his design for a layout representing the Pennsylvania Railroad and its role in the Second World War. Doug, welcome to the Model Railway Show. Thank you. It's great to have you here. Now, let's start at the beginning. How did you get involved in the hobby? Well, even before 1949, when I was about five years old, I'd been rail-fanning New York Central trains while playing at a playground in Upper Manhattan. I was already rearranging my simple Mark's wind-up train set, complete with telephone poles and crossing gates. By 1954, I'd built an American flyer layout with past sightings and industries. So now when did that interest in model trains evolve into an interest in layout design? Was there an aha moment for you along the way? There was no single moment. I had become keenly interested in layout design as a main focus in model railroading while I was still in elementary school. My imagination was challenged when I began to read magazine articles by Frank Ellison and John Armstrong. They both offered inspiring advice about track planning, layout scenery, and industries to portray prototype operation. Within a few years, I had also discovered other designers, including Al Kambach and Paul Mallory, Bill Shop, and John Allen. By high school, I read articles by Mike Schaefer, Lynn Westcott, Paul Larson, and others that featured prototype photographs. My interest in layout design was so strong that it led to a career in transportation planning, civil engineering, and city planning. Most of us don't take our layout design interest that far. A lot of us are interested. We don't actually go and do that or go and form a layout design SIG. Tell us about the formation of that. When and how did that happen? Well, during the 1970s, I had a -a once-in-a-lifetime great satisfaction of being a volunteer advisor to Alan McClellan, Steve King, and Tony Custer during their preparation of RMC the Virginian and Ohio story. I helped them behind the scenes generate, organize, and publish in-depth explanatory design material. A few years later, in 1982, the NMRA promoted the formation of a new kind of hobby institution called Special Interest Groups. Members of a SIG would share an interest in a particular aspect of model railroading. 
I quickly signed up to start a group for would-be layout designers. And what was the need for such an organization? Well, the hobby seemed to need leadership to provide and promote information on designing layouts that incorporated the ideas of some of the most progressive layout builders and authors of the day. Many barriers made it hard for designers to identify kindred spirits and inspirational layouts, to communicate with experts to design their better layouts, and to arrange for layout visits. I hope the SIG would help hobbyists to design, build, and operate more ambitious, satisfying, and innovative layouts. I look forward to addressing many unmet needs for better layout coverage, design concepts, and useful vocabulary, the design process, user-friendly design education, and design institutions. Personally, I loved learning about layouts, sharing design ideas with thoughtful creative experts, and mentoring motivated, open-minded hobbyists who were also excited about learning. Long-term, I expected that leading a layout design SIG would also help improve my own ambitious layout and lead to new friendships. I perceived needs even by experienced model builders familiar with prototype railroading. Many hobbyists seem challenged by the prospect of layout design because they can't just directly copy something. Instead, they must identify many layout givens, druthers, and constraints, and decide upon many priorities, choices, compromises, selective compressions and omissions, and object placements. So the prime purpose of the layout design SIG became to aid efforts to design and create layouts that achieve owners' layout goals with a minimum amount of space and cost to avoid common design flaws and to include prototypical and model design features that maximize operating and visual interest. Now, you've touched on something interesting there. You mentioned common design flaws. You coined a motto for the LD SIG, which is make only new mistakes. What do you mean by that? When I tore down my first HO layout in 1968, I identified over four dozen design and operating shortcomings, even though I had followed all the published advice of the day. At this stage, I yearned for further advice that would help avoid mistakes others had already experienced. My pre-1982 layout design efforts, conversations with other layout owners and operators, and my professional training had alerted me to the notion that certain mistakes were preventable. I adopted the slogan of make only new mistakes for all aspects of future layout design efforts. Establishing or compiling best practices seemed like a wise course of action. I saw potential benefits in continual efforts to avoid mistakes by seeking feedback and advice from experts. I wanted the layout design SIG to advance the state of the art of layout design and education by identifying and promoting the most informative and inspiring design material and flag recurring shortcomings. For 30 years, the SIG has documented and shared layout owners' successes, failures, lessons, and recommendations. Making only new mistakes seems especially important now for baby boomers who are ready to build their final lifetime layout. Because they only have so much time and energy left and they can't afford to make a mistake at this point, right? Right. That's exactly it. It's time to get going. <laughs> okay. Well, if baby boomers who are listening to this, you've heard it. Get going. Establishing a SIG is not an easy task. Who did you call on to help you decide or codify what the SIG would be and what it would do. Did you have help in that area? I sure did. I was able to get support and early guidance for starting the SIG from many respected hobby friends, most notably John Armstrong, who also lived in the Washington, D.C. area, as well as Tony Custer, Steve King, Bob Schleicher from Rail Model Journal, 
Dan Holbrook, a professional railroader, Tony Steele, a professional railroad civil engineer, and Bruce Metcalf, who had edited the very popular magazine in the L.A. area for model railroaders. They all helped me promote and formulate an array of promising activities, including publications, convention activities, home meetings, networking, and aids for communication and research. I find it interesting that that list of names includes so many published authors. They should be household names to everybody in the hobby. Now, one of the things also that strikes me when I talk to people about layout design myself, and I'm sure that you have this happen as well, when we use the phrase layout design, many people actually mean track planning because that's the limit of their appreciation of what layout design is all about. They're worried about where the curves are, what size they're going to be, what size turnouts they're using, that sort of thing. But you've always argued argued that there's a lot more to layout design than just that. I know we could talk about that for hours, but what are some of the things that a good designer should consider even before they draw the first track? I think that the current editor of the Layout Design Journal, Byron Henderson, is on to something. In his wisdom, he suggests identifying your grand vision of what you would most like to see once your layout was built. What images come to mind? What viewpoints or perspectives would you like to take? What are you trying to accomplish? What's the purposes of the layout? Are you trying to take something to exhibits, to entertain visitors, to display favorite models, to support a large operating session? What about capturing a favorite trackside memory? Or maybe you're preparing a museum display and you want what you're doing to be educational. What are your favorite prototypes and their types of operation? Especially, I recommend paying attention to traffic flows and route schematics. Does the traffic flow directionally or does it go both ways? What are the relative volumes among the different kinds of trains? What are the signature industries and the lesser ones that support them? What are your favorite or most important locations and season? Even within a general season, are there particular months or weeks within that season that are especially noteworthy? What are your desires for eventual operating sessions? A lot of people don't think about this until later, but how often your sessions might be and how long they would last could make a difference in your design. What mix, numbers, and challenges of the jobs do you want to capture? How much time do you want to spend setting up each session? What modeling standards are you aiming for? Something simple, maybe something impressionistic, or something that would be very precise and photorealistic? How are these standards going to vary, whether you're six feet away, three feet away, or just a foot away? How much technology can you handle or afford? And then the challenge, of course, is to match your standards realistically with the resources that you have available, including time and skills. One of the most intriguing things I encourage people to do is consider job-centered layout design. Today, I believe that the hobby's traditional notion of a hop sessions as theater is somewhat outdated. Trains should not be considered the actors. Session operators are the actors, and trains are just props. Long before track planning, determine the jobs you'd most like to portray when the layout is operational. Be specific. Consider the types of jobs and their numbers. Consider each occupation's tasks, associated trackage and rolling stock, job rituals, and props like phones or clocks. Then determine all aspects of layout design and construction that would make these jobs the most appealing, realistic, challenging, satisfying, and low stress. Another idea that I think is very promising is to use your layout to tell notable stories about prototype railroading. This idea comes from Bruce Metcalf, the former president of the Layout Design SIG, who once worked for Disney World. 
There he learned that stories are multifaceted and that everything you put on your railroad can help to tell your story. Much more than just choosing one railroad, the locale, the era, and the types of rolling stock. So what do I mean by stories? Here are some examples. What about the twilight of steam or the introduction of diesels? How did that really happen? It's really much more than just a mix of locomotives. Another example is the post-war passenger business, when the railroads are optimistically investing in new equipment, or what they went through during the twilight of the passenger business, or what they went through during its resurgence, either for Amtrak or commuter rail. What are the impacts of recent railroad mergers in terms of merging, mixing up the rolling stock, blending the seniority rosters, finding different ways to run your traffic? What are the impacts of significant railroad industry leaders, an Al Perlman or a Barringer? They've put their personal stamps on the railroads that they managed, and maybe you could do the same for your railroad. What are the challenges and responses of railroading during something like World War II? How do you mobilize your rolling stock and your crews to get the job done? Lastly, what about railroad mobilization to support a particular signature train or traffic, like a railroad's premier passenger or freight train? All of these things can help tell different kinds of stories. Then you can mobilize all the design aspects of a layout and its settings to help tell each story visually and during operating sessions as clearly as it's possible. This includes preparing your layout room, setting your operational goals, file widths, and other matters, the track planning itself, which trackage do you decide to include to tell your story, and, of course, the bench work, the backdrop materials. How do you use your backdrops to help tell the story? What about using your fascia to convey information or valances to display operating material or prototype documents? What about picking layout lighting that varies depending on what your story is? Track work and right-of-way are other aspects that tell the story, too. Many model railroaders are just beginning now to model the right-of-way much more realistically, including the mix of tangents and curves that capture the prototype alignments along the routes, and the right-of-way cross-sections that include the track spacings, the sub-roadbed, the ditches, super-elevation, the terrain along the track so that it looks like it was there before the trains came, and modeling the actual natural slopes of the different materials. Another aspect is the control and electrical systems, including signaling and traffic management. These things can best be done by identifying them at the earliest stages of considering a layout and then building them into your planning and construction sequences. Landscaping and scenery planning, like Alan McCullen talked about many years ago, scenery before, not after, is still timely. It's also potentially exciting to plan for structures instead of as an afterthought. Allow breathing room and consider how vehicles can reach them and how railroad tracks can match up with the structures. And lastly, identify the aspects of operation that can be introduced later after the railroad has been built. Now, building a model railroad is a complex task that involves good management if you want to achieve what you're trying to do. Establishing a plan for construction can help you make progress and motivate you. So what are some of the ideas that the SIG has ferreted out over the years? Well, one is to design a layout that can be built in increments. The first, for partial operation. Pick something that you can start with soon, even if you're using temporary staging. And the feedback from this is usually a great accelerant to making progress. Plan each increment to be a usable segment. By that I mean so that if the layout doesn't ever get completed, what you've already built could still be satisfying without the missing pieces. And then include a small finished scenic segment early on that helps give visitors a preview of your ultimate goals and skills. On a multi-deck layout, it's particularly important to develop a practical sequence of benchwork, track, 
wiring, signaling, scenery, and other construction matters. So what you're really getting at in a lot of this is that when we build a model railroad, the railroad isn't established by the paint scheme on the side of the locomotives. You can have the Pennsylvania Railroad, to use your example, can have a very different character depending on whether you're modeling the east end of it, the west end of it. And it is a very different character than, say, the railroads it competed against, like the New York Central. And that's the sort of thing that layout designers can get at when they're designing their layout to help tell that story, right? Absolutely. And I'm particularly intrigued with our paying more attention to the impact of railroad management and labor unions on the culture of railroading on a layout. I think that could be an important key to setting the mood and creating an interesting environment. That's one of the things that maybe we haven't explored as much. We've done a lot of work as layout designers on the basics, and layout designs have become much more sophisticated over the years since the LD-SIG was established. But there must be aspects of layout design that haven't been fully addressed, like modeling the jobs and the corporate culture, things like that. What other aspects would you like to see hobbyists explore more going forward? Well, I think the storytelling is especially important, but there are others. For example, modeling many aspects of time. Railroading actually created modern-day time and notions of time, and yet model railroaders often trivialize its importance, even if you're operating with a sequence. I think that the future holds great things for nighttime operations, because after all, railroading was a 24-7 business. Other aspects of modeling time, I think, include trying to get a handle on train connections, even the ones that are in staged territory. Your trains have to get to a certain place, even if it's staging, on a certain time basis so that they can make connections that are going to other places. And within yards, there are often on prototype cutoff times, after which inbound cars are not sorted and connected onto a train that's about to go out. And then there are the matters of on-time performance for passenger trains and freight trains. Many railroads had standards for what they were aiming for, and although there were slippages, engineers were in many cases motivated to try and make up time to minimize the delays, certainly to avoid stabbing important trains. Another aspect, I think, is modeling over-the-road challenges and realism for engineers. How can we enhance the operations that we encounter running over the road, whether it's by speed restriction zones or paying more attention to whistling or to headlight use? These things can help keep an engineer on his toes or her toes, even if they're not worrying about meets and passes. Another aspect that I think has been neglected but has a lot of potential are rail ship intermodal operations, especially conventional brake bulk cargo ships. After all, even a full-scale ship might only be five feet long, and many of the contemporary industries we see in the hobby press now, paper mills or auto assembly plans, are often much longer than five feet and yet appear with a ship next to it. could really handle a lot of traffic, and the logistics of timing the movements to get the cargo on the right deck and so on I think could be very interesting. Another last idea that I'd plant here is modeling scenes that have been influenced by famous or skilled landscape artists and photographers, railroad photographers. What about considering railroad and regional calendar artists? They're often the ones hired to nail the spirit of a scene, so why not pivot off of those when you're picking scenes and executing them? a matter of giving the railroad its character and personality, and as you may have suggested, also capturing the mood of a railroad. I think we've already touched on modeling familiar locales and traffic and era, 
But there are other things as well to consider. Things like who the shippers are. Who are the biggest shippers? What's the mix of passengers on a railroad? Are they commuters? Are they resort travelers with a lot of baggage? Just who are we carrying? Who are the competitors for the railroad that you're modeling, especially in the section that you're modeling? Is it other railroads? Is it trucks? Is it barges? And what are you doing to meet the competition? Or are you losing business to them because you can't compete with them? What are the corporate relations that you have? Who are your friends? What are the friendly railroads? Who are your competing railroads? And what are the gateways and connections that supply you with traffic or that you feed traffic to? How many different ways can your layout show the corporate identity, not just with signs, but with distinctive architecture or standard recognizable other features? I alluded before to management and culture, but I think that many railroads have developed this, even in terms of using language like way freights and peddlers and drills and roustabouts, and it helps to create a spirit of a railroad by paying attention to these cultural things. How wealthy or prosperous is the railroad at the time you're modeling? Is it down on its knees or does it have extra money to allow it to upgrade, to straighten its main line or to build new stations? And what about paying attention to the industries? At any one point in time on a real railroad, some industries were in their fledgling status and the railroad improvised serving those new shippers with old railroad cars until they could design cars that were suited to them. On the other hand, as the railroad's industries changed their mix, some freight cars would get downgraded and recycled in other uses because those industries no longer needed them. And indeed, some industries might be trackside and not even ship anymore by railroad. So you can see that there's lots of different aspects to designing a railroad besides just the most conventional notions of track planning. And I guess that's the challenge for us is how do we take those ideas, including things like corporate culture, and express them on the layout? How do you tell that story to visitors who aren't familiar with the railroad that you're modeling? Exactly. And I think the emphasis there should be paying attention to those aspects of history that you can model on the layout or that you can reenact during your operating sessions. In contrast, things like financial reports and maybe some merger things that don't show up in your territory are, from a layout design point of view, not really very relevant. Well, Doug, you've given, I think, our listeners a ton of information to think about. That's going to keep them busy for the next 30 years. Congratulations on 30 years of the layout design, SIG, and thanks for joining us on the Model Railway Show today. Thank you for having me. Thanks, guys. You know, the fun thing, Trevor, for me about this show is the chance to put voices to the names we've read about for so long. Doug's a good example. I've seen his byline in so many places. You know, he's one of those guys, he's, I call him the layout designer's layout designer because most people in the hobby won't necessarily have heard of Doug's name, but he has influenced so many people that they have heard of. His ideas come up in magazines like Model Railroad Planning, edited by Tony Custer. They come up, of course, in the Layout Design Journal. Anything that pushes boundaries, and I'd say that Anyone who talks to Doug, first of all, you need a lot of time to talk to Doug because he always has so many good ideas that you need to set aside time to really talk to him and explore those ideas. It's worth the time. You go away from a talk with Doug thinking completely differently about your layout design and about the hobby. Well said. Well, don't forget, the best way to listen to the Model Railway Show is by signing up for a free podcast subscription. You can find us on iTunes, podcast.com, and podfeed.net, and you'll never miss an episode. Another alternative, of course, is to look for us on Facebook. Well, it's Jim's turn now as he welcomes back NMRA President Charlie Getz. As you'll hear, Charlie is working on a really exciting project, but it's one that's going to need your help. 
As if the amazing California State Railroading Museum in Sacramento was not already a must-see for any serious model railroader, the National Model Railroad Association is busy mixing the icing for the cake, a proper, professionally built and presented homage to the hobby of model railroading. A new gallery, The Magic of Scale Model Railroading, is to be constructed in the Museum Roundhouse. This important and possibly first-of-its-kind exhibit will not only shine a light on the hobby, but will present the history and development of the craft from its very earliest times all the way to the ever-evolving present. Visitors to the exhibit will leave with a fuller understanding of what makes our hobby such a worthy endeavor. The crown jewels of the exhibit will be, of course, the historic layouts and models built by those who have become legends. This isn't going to happen for free, however, and that's where you, our listeners, can play an important part in helping this worthy project to fruition. We now welcome back Charlie Getz, who was actively involved in this project even before he became the current NMR. President. Charlie, you're a busy guy. You know what? Charlie, I've got a friend who knows you and wonders why instead of going to all this trouble to build a new museum, you just don't open up your basement. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so I've been in the hobby for almost, uh, well, it's, it's coming up to 51 years now. 50 years ago, last Christmas, I became a scale model railroader with the proverbial Christmas gift of scale trains. Earlier line L train didn't take, but this did. And I don't think I've thrown anything away, which makes me a true model railroader since that day. So yes, there's, there's some truth to Yeah, that. he says you got one of about everything. Anyway, uh, about, yeah. how did you get hooked up with this project, and who are the other principals? Well, this project actually started from one of those historical coincidences that the stars shine upon you. For 38 years, and I mentioned this last program, I was the Deputy Attorney General for the State of California in the Attorney General State of California's office, and I was the attorney for the California State Railroad Museum, and they mentioned that they were looking for something to complement their Sefton toy train exhibit. The Sefton toy train exhibit, very briefly, being an extremely well-done exhibit of tin plate that a fellow named Thomas Sefton left his personal collection and a lot of money to the museum to create a gallery, if you will, of toy trains. That was his hobby. Well, past that point on the mezzanine level, above the roundhouse itself, the doors of the roundhouse, is what they call the gallery, because it circles around where people can look down upon the exhibits on the roundhouse floor. That's always been a tough space for them. It's a very awkward space for exhibits, and they have temporary exhibits, but they were hoping to have something about scale model railroading, and they knew my hobby was scale model railroading. Five and a half years later, and a lot of negotiation and no conflicts of interest, by the way, the NMRA, which I was a member and on the museum committee, and the state of California reached an agreement to allow us to install at our expense, but at no rent, for at least 10 years and hopefully 20 plus, an exhibit on scale model railroading. And when we do that, we own the exhibit, but it is basically on loan to them. And that exhibit one day can form the nucleus of a permanent museum Mm -hmm. for us. So it's a win-win-win for everybody. The Museum Committee of the NMRA, which is what is uh, driving this, has some very distinguished members. Bob Brown, who is the editor and publisher of the Narrowgate Shortline Gazette, is a member. Alan Pollock, past president of the NMRA, very, very involved in industry, is one of our members. John Roberts has been a member. He was also a past president of the NMRA. Mike Brestel, who is the immediate past president, is one. Tom Draper, our former treasurer of the NMRA, uh, former executive of Motorola. And our newest member is a fellow by the name of Reed Dennis, who was the 
first venture capitalist in Silicon Valley, 86 years old, bless his heart, but a very, very enthusiastic model router and collector of brass. We have a number of others, Lee Riley, for example, Bachman is also a member. So we have a very, very good committee of very distinguished people. Wow, what a collection of talent. In a recent editorial, you said there's never been a more important effort undertaken by the NMRA. Now, that's a pretty heady statement, considering all the NMRA has done for the hobby. Can you explain that? I think because of the scope of this is why I said that. Let me explain that very quickly. The state of California is well known as a tourist destination, and obviously Mickey Mouse is what first comes to mind. It might shock people and not surprise them to death to find out that the California State Railroad Museum is the third most visited attraction in the state of California. It falls behind Disneyland and SeaWorld in San Diego. Old Town Sacramento, which is where the CSRM is located, attracts three and a half million visitors a year. It's a preserved, it's not phony, it's real, a preserved 1849 section of what the gold rush was all about. It's the original Sacramento. And there is where the Central Pacific began. And that is where the California State Railroad Museum is located. And that museum is a world-class museum for those of your listeners who haven't been. It ranks up there with the Pennsylvania Museum and the museum in York, England, both of which I've been fortunate enough to visit. It attracts 625,000 last year in a recession paid visitors a year, of which a substantial number are school kids and seniors on tour. Having that exposure to scale model railroading is priceless. If we want this hobby to grow, as Bob Brown said, the best way to grow the hobby is to show the hobby. Show them what model railroading is all about, and that's what this exhibit is going to do. Highlight the best of model railroading, the history of it. Finally, to put those numbers in perspective, 625,000 visitors a year. The world's greatest hobby campaign, which is operated in the United States by Kalmbach, Walters, and a number of other industry groups to promote the hobby. It's a traveling train show has been very, very successful. 20,000, 30,000 people attend those routinely. They do a number of shows a year. They've done it for 10 years. In that time, they've kept track. They have reached 1 million visitors and exposed them to scale model rarity. That is one and a half years of exposure at the CSRM. Wow. So, yeah, you can see the potential <laughs> yeah. of this. That's why I'm excited about yeah. it. It is the best way of getting the word out about model rarity. And the best thing of all, it doesn't replace everything else that's going on out there. It well, just supplements yeah. it. Well, I've I've seen the plan in NMRA magazine, a pretty big exhibit. Can you take us through the front door and out the back? Sure. It's almost 2,000 square feet, which is fairly large. You walk into what's called the South Gallery, and this is going to be a knockout gallery of some of the best modeling that is currently done. It also includes sections of some historic model railroads, including the Virginian and Ohio, Alan McClellan's layout, for example. There's a special layout that was built by some Australians just for this exhibit, some very talented folks representing a New England scene, beautifully done. There's the San Juan Central, one of the model railroaders project railroads, the only narrow gauge one they ever did, HON3, 8x10 in its entirety. That'll be there for people to look at, and it still is a knockout layout. There will be individual models, whole trains, brass painted passenger trains, for example, all in this one park. Then you go around the perimeter of the roundhouse, the front of the roundhouse, on what is more like a giant catwalk. And here we will have a very abbreviated but very entertaining history of the hobby going back to 18. 18- 1944, when there was a Tennyson poem where he was describing what must have been the first garden railroad in the world and describing a garden party with a little engine puffing around the garden. And it goes into such interesting detail as model railroading and the 
Titanic. The Titanic had a model railroading connection. When it went down, it took the entire American shipment of a British model railroad magazine with it. And the British model railroad magazine in the next issue apologized to its American readers that they didn't get their magazine because it went down on the Titanic. So this kind of little minute might be, well, that's kind of neat, but for the public, that is just, you know, interesting stuff. But it also talks about the hobby and the Depression, the war years, the 50s, the coming of plastic, the age of brass, and then the modern hobby. So you can see what the hobby is today. And then finally, you're going to get into the North Gallery where there's going to be a layout under construction. There's going to be an interactive workshop area where people will actually be doing things, demonstrating. Videos can be watched. And how do you get involved? A little show about what the magazines are available and how you can find out more about scale model railroading and how you can find out about the NMRA. And then downstairs in the gift shop, there will be magazines and books they can pick up about how to become a model railroader. So this is going to be taking them by the hand and walking them through this entertaining, interactive exhibit of what scale model railroading has been in the past, is today, and will be in the future. It'll just knock the socks out of everybody. But for those who are model railroaders already, there will be some iconic pieces. Now, I'll just give you one example. John Allen's Time Saver, the original little switching layout that he built as a game, survived the fire. It's actually at my house right now in storage, and it will be there. So those of you who love John Allen, and I certainly do, you will see for example, that time saver and some of his rolling stock that went with it. Well, now the museum is offering you the space. Apparently the NMRA owns a lot of what's going in there. What principally are the funds going towards then? Well, the funds are going almost exclusively for the necessary high level of casing and graphics that we're going to need to put the items that we mostly do have, as you correctly point out, into casing. This is something that you couldn't buy the space, number one. There's no rent. There's no utilities. There's no security. There's no advertising cost to us. All we have to do is put the display in there. So we have the installation cost. We have to maintain the items in the display. They aren't going to touch those. They want model railroaders to do that. And we have to provide the casing. The casing will be provided and designed so that it can be removed. We own it. It isn't owned by the museum. So that's our expense, and it's a hefty price tag, but it's a lot of stuff to provide. 2,000 square feet of space to fill with high-quality casing for a world-class museum does not come cheaply. No, but it's so necessary to present it well, isn't it? It's yes, better it than is. the average and train it, show. It's better. Yes, you can't <laughs> just have plywood with skirting. That's no. not going to work for this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How much do you need? How far along are you, and how can we help? Well, the good news is, uh, that sounds horrible, we need somewhere between half a million to three-quarters of a million U.S. dollars. We think is a real budget. Now, there's a range because until we have most of the money in hand, we're not going to go forward with getting a final budget simply because we want to make sure we can do it. Otherwise, it isn't fair to those firms that have to you know, spend money to give us that. But we've gotten budgets in the past, so we know this is doable. We have one member of the NMRA who wants to remain anonymous who has pledged a $250,000 donation, one-third of the money we need, on a one-to-one match. In other words, we raise 250000 he will give us 250000 We are over halfway to our half of the 250000 And if we get to $500,000, even though we would like to have more, it's a go. We will go forward. If we do not get to $500,000, we are not going to go forward because we just don't think it's fair because we're just not going to be able to do it. So I think we're going to make it, but we still need the folks listening out there to please help us. This is not NMRA. This is for the future of our hobby. Well, fingers crossed, and we'll direct our listeners to the links on this interview so that they know how to donate as well. Curious, how will this new museum fit with the current Howell Day Museum in Chattanooga? Will any or part of that museum be moved to California? I'm glad you asked that because there's a bit of a misnomer 
misnomer that we have a museum in Chattanooga. We really don't. We looked at doing one there. There's two problems. One, the space available in the basement of our beautiful headquarters building didn't meet the codes for a public display. And so we really couldn't do that. And the more realistic problem is that we don't get foot traffic there. It's in an isolated part of Chattanooga, even though there's a railroad museum next door. So it just didn't make commercial sense. But to answer your question, one of the advantages of the gallery exhibit is that the state of California, as our partner, is building a huge museum of railroad technology, which is going to happen, by the way, in the historic Southern Pacific Rail Yards adjacent to the existing museum. They are trying to preserve a building for us as our future home for the permanent National Model Railroad Association Museum of Scale Model Railroading. So 20 years down the road, that would be our home. And all of these exhibit cases will just be moved over there and, you know, doubled. We're going to have a very big budget for that thing, (laughs) but that's many years down the road. So all of the stuff in Chattanooga that is in very, very secure storage that we don't use for this exhibit will be brought out and used for that. Exciting, very exciting future. I'm certainly excited about the prospect of seeing layouts and models built by the very kinds of people we like to celebrate on this show. I don't think we can fully appreciate where we are without looking back. And Charlie, thank you so much. My thanks also to Motion and Jack, Trevor's dogs, for adding a little color commentary there on our chat as well. (laughs) Charlie, it's been great chatting with you. Thanks so much. Well, my pleasure, and thank you very much for letting me do this. Sounds exciting, guys. Thanks for that. Have you ever made it out to the California Railroad Museum, Jim? It's on my to-do list before I get too much older. It's funny, he mentioned three dynamite museums, the one in York, England, which is also, I have to do the next time I get over to see my relatives there. I have seen the one in Strasburg, Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Railroad Museum. So, one out of three, I've got two to go. Ironically, the Strasburg Museum is the one out of three that I haven't seen. I've seen both the York Model Railway Museum and the Cal State one. Well, it's good to know between the two of us, we don't have to go anywhere. We've got them covered. Yeah. That's I, w- right. I went somewhere recently. I went on the Holmes Layout Tour. Now, do you recall? I think it was back in episode 21. I spoke to Brandon Beyer of the Hamilton Holmes Layout Club. That's right. And we talked basically about how you have to plan these things against the eventuality that you may lose the premises you're in. That conversation came about because the Montreal Club had lost its location, which That's was in right. the CN Freight yeah. Shed. That's yeah. right. Well, it's happened again, and this time it's a very well, they're all storied, but this one is a club with a 75-year history. It's the Model Railroad Club of Toronto. They've been hit with yuppie disease. Their space is coming down. It's going to be turned into condos. Condos. Yeah. Condos in Toronto grow like corn in Iowa. They but, certainly do. Probably so, faster than yeah. corn in Iowa. Fortunately, they've been given until the end of April to clear out their layout. They are, if you're in the area, they are going to have a couple of open houses, one in a uh, weekend in December, and then they'll have a couple of weekends in February. We will have the list of dates on our website, themodelrailwayshow.com. Be sure to check that out. And, you know, Toronto is a great place. If you're looking for a great destination for your family, come on up and sneak away for an hour or two and go see the club. That's right. We're not asking you to drive eight hours or ten hours to just see a layout, but make a holiday weekend out of it and come on up. And tell them we sent you. You you bet. And, uh, again, we'll have a link to their uh, club website as well. We wish Dave McLean and all the crew at the Toronto Model Railroad Club all the best in their move. Right. 
Well, it's time once again to take our leave. Next time around, I'll get technical as I welcome Seth Newman back to the show, along with one of the guys on his operating crew, Chris Drome. They're going to talk about another way to emulate the prototype on a modern railway, especially they're using radio frequency identification to track their rolling stock. We'll find out about that. My side of the show is going to lean to the artistic as I chat with Danish artist Trolls Kirk, whose railroad modeling abilities and use of color and materials are making many of us think differently about how to construct and paint models. Thanks as always to Dave Woodhead for our theme music, Otto Vondrak for our website design, and Chris Abbott for his technical assistance. And two new members to the crew, Trevor's Dogs, Motion, and Jack, who, as you heard, protect our studio from courier deliveries. Till next time, for Trevor Marshall, I'm Jim Martin. Thanks for joining us here on the Model Railway Show. Mm-hmm.